As entrepreneurs, we want to make a huge difference. We want to deliver tremendous value to our clients and all those future clients. But at the same time, what we want to do in our own enlightened self-interest is to create tremendous value. Well, I have a remarkable expert that knows all about creating value from both sides of the equation today. He is a unique individual in that, first of all, he's recognized worldwide as a thought leader, most recently from the Merger and Acquisition Alliance. He's the number one thought leader this last year. In addition, though, and this is a part that should scare you a bit, half of his work is working on with businesses, particularly family-owned businesses, in arbitration and litigation on the challenges of that creating value. Okay, unbelievable lessons over there, but why I wanted to have him here with you today is the other half, the half where he's helping businesses really realize their full potential. And that's what we have here at AES Nation. It's all about accelerating your success. I'm John Bowen. You are at AES Nation. Stay tuned. You want to meet and learn these lessons so you can apply to create tremendous value. Stay tuned. Ordinary success? No way. You want amazing, remarkable, exceptional breakthroughs. Dig deep, think bold, drive hard. Watch yourself soar beyond your dreams. AESNation.com Carl, thank you for joining us. I, you, know, you have such, I mean, I only gave a couple bullets of your uh, introduction. I was joking before we turned on the recording that I printed out, you know, kind of your CV and it's over 10 pages just because you've been making a difference out there. And what I'd love to do uh, is to, before we go into some of the lessons learned that, the, you know, these six, our peers, our successful entrepreneurs, can execute so that they can create the value and learn from the lessons that you have. Give us a little background because um, I don't want to say you have a checkered past, but you, you've done a lot of stuff here. And, and really, it's, you're, you occupy a very unusual, um, you know, as this strategy architect to helping businesses. There are very few people that are qualified. There's a lot of people you and I know that raise their hand to say they are. How did you get to where you are today? Um, I, I would say the operative word is risk and opportunity. Maybe that's operative two words. Um, risk is a good way to look at it is the more that you can identify, measure, manage, and mitigate risk, the lower the risk, the higher the price multiple. That's the end game. We tend to be taught that you look at the top line, the revenues, the bottom line, being the profits, and that's what should drive the motivation. But that's an oversimplicity as to what drives value. Risk and opportunity is what drives value. Now, Carl, though, you know, let me, you know, how do, I want to go to a little of the qualifications because, sure. you know, I mean, you've got an unusual academic, you know, real world experience, and then the, the privilege, you know, earned privilege of working with so many successful uh, entrepreneurs, particularly family-owned businesses, that you've made a huge difference. And I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, a little here, a little there, but many, many millions of dollars, and really aggregately, I'm sure, billions of dollars. 
Um, how did you gain that expertise? I mean, I, you know, I'm going to talk about your book later. I've read your book. You, you've, you've got a lot of depth there. Um, well, one would say that it actually started as an entrepreneur between the age of 9 and uh, 12. Uh, I lived in Brooklyn, uh, New York, and I delivered fruits and vegetables. Each delivery was 25 cents. The tips were between 25 and 50 cents. So for the two-hour period between 3 and 5 o'clock, I could pull down 2 to $4, which as a kid in the uh, uh, late 60s and early 70s, that's not too bad uh, bread and butter for that age. And that kind of tapped into the entrepreneurial uh, bite that got me going forward. I did serve in the military, and that military uh, service in the Marines kind of taught to sift out the uh, minutiae from the relevant and stay focused. So that passion that most entrepreneurs have is how do you tap into that passion and still remain focused? That then fast forward after doing a lot of strategic work in the Marine Corps at various uh, levels, I, I ended up uh, joining um, a uh, organization that most people are familiar with, American Automobile Association, uh, the national headquarters, and doing operational audits. And the best way to think about operational audits is if you went in for a full exam medical examination, that takes all day, this is an audit that takes all week and identifies both the strengths and weaknesses. Obviously, when there's weaknesses, you try to uh, repair them. So it's more than just finance, it's operations and, and strategy, recognizing that businesses are just four walls. It's made of the human beings and the organization. Then fast forward after that, financial analyst for multidisciplinary appraisal firm that got me involved in all forms of appraisal, real estate appraisal, machinery and equipment, and obviously uh, businesses. I was able to have a couple of successes uh, early on, received several large federal contracts for appraisal uh, work, actually invested in several other businesses, a byproduct. So I've been a serial entrepreneur in my own right. I've had four liquidity events uh, to date. The most recent one is I actually merged my boutique national practice with a global uh, valuation and litigation and advisory services firm, Berkeley Research Group. Now, I mean, that's great. And, you know, and throughout your career, I mean, it's always been foc focused on focus, you know, that strategic value creation. You use the term uh, strategic value architect, and I think it fits really well. I want to go to some of the key takeaways that you've had over this career that are going to help the entrepreneurs, you know, that we have the privilege of, you know, joining us on the uh, video podcast or on the audio side. And one, you know, as we were getting prepared for this, it really hit me. The first one we were talking is growth versus gratification. And, and tell me a little bit about how that comes to play with an entrepreneur. Well, as you know, most entrepreneurs um, have the uh, passion. They certainly want to persist. But at some point, they want to receive some of the fruits of their labor. Um, unfortunately, oftentimes they do that a little bit too soon, and that starts a pattern, sometimes referred to as the lifestyle business, and it causes a lot of business owners to cap out at between five and $10 million in either revenues or value. But many of them want to get to 25 million, 50 million, 100 million. So what's the difference 
between those two entrepreneurs. One of them tends to be very focused on building value, and the other one is focused on what kind of profits can I generate this year so that I can expand my lifestyle. Um, starving the beast is what I usually refer to it as. So if you look at it from the standpoint as an investor, would you want to invest in a company that's publicly traded that doesn't reinvest in the company's growth? And most people say, well, of course not, because I get most of my return on capital appreciation or growth. Why would you do that in your primary asset? So there's got to be a good balance between reinvestment back in the business. And when I say reinvestment, I don't mean just financial capital. I also mean human capital. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah, Carl, let's go a little deeper on this, on just kind of the trade-offs, because you know, I've had both businesses. I, I call them lifestyle boutiques, and they're you know great. You know, you can make a really good income, and you know, particularly in professional services. But you can have it in manufacturing. You can have any of these where you know you're you've got a business that's kind of chugging along, and then you know there's the other businesses, and I've built and gone full cycle on a number of businesses where we really invested, and particularly there was some diff delayed gratification by the partners and the families and so on. And, uh, and, and in some cases, there was a pretty big payday because of that. But, you know, how do you help an entrepreneur kind of see the trade-offs between the two areas? Uh, it's, it's actually a pretty good uh, uh, question. What we'll do first is we'll start with the benchmark. Say, where are you at right now and why? Now, if that's an issue of preference, and we usually kind of distill it down to liquidity, legacy, leverage, and learning. Where are they on that life cycle of the business? Does this suit them? If this is what they want, then they're, quite frankly, there isn't much of an issue other than perhaps one of those four L's that I mentioned previously. But there's always a benchmark that you start off with, and that benchmark allows you to identify the low-lying fruit of to what you could be doing differently to work on the business as opposed to in the business. In other words, the blocking and tackling. So what we'll do is we'll demonstrate what would happen in 20 years, assuming that this is maybe you're in your first five years or maybe you're in your last five years. What would happen if you change certain levers in the way that you operate your business? Maybe you have one business that says, look, I've never really liked using debt uh, as part of the capital stack, and we indicate that perhaps because you're a manufacturer, you could produce twice the widgets in half the time, which would lower your labor cost, uh, your, uh, uh, your waste as far as uh, inventory would go down because every time the equipment uh, stops because of a problem uh, with the performance of the equipment, your repair and maintenance expense would drop. Um, and, and even after the interest expense, which of course, after taxes drops down to almost free cash because of the current interest rate. What we show is, is that you might have a business that within a year and a half could be 75 million as opposed to 25 million. How sexy is that to you? And most people say it's pretty sexy. What do I have to do in order to do that? Hence that brings us back to the strategic value architect. We find out whether they have the people in place to help them get from here to there, whether we need to um, align those individuals because they're comfortable with them as far as their talents, or whether we need to bring in 
outside people that those people are comfortable with or whether we drop ship some of our own staff in that organization. But it starts with the fundamental question of am I happy at 10, 10 million, 25 million, or do I see myself as part of a future liquidity where I want it to be uh, high eight or even nine figure type uh, sale. Yeah, and having gone through that myself, you know, the difference in valuation that that creates. And, you know, we all know uh, one of the things as entrepreneurs, we want to grow our businesses, but we also want to mag really uh, maximize our personal wealth. So we have all the options, no matter what we want to do. And and boy, that switching that little switch. Uh, and my experience is you don't have to screw up your life. I mean, I think that's one of the things that entrepreneurs worry about is, hey, I've got this great lifestyle business. If I try scaling up, you know, boy, I'm putting everything at risk and, you know, and, and the the amount of management and issues and so on. And, and that, that really leads us to the next area that we talked about, and it's the, uh, you know, how important human capital is, the ecosystem uh, to, to make this transition. And maybe, you know, Carl, what are you seeing there? Uh, it's a great question, John. Bottom line is uh, this. Um, the real differentiation between any business is the people that you have internally to the organization and the people that you work with, whether they're the vendors, whether they're the clients, whether they're the advisors. So that team, back to the old saying, it takes a village, cannot be underemphasized or rather overemphasized. And so the question then becomes is, what kind of relationships do you have? Are these ones that they're offering uncommon knowledge or stuff that if you went on the internet, you could find the answers to a lot of those questions. If you're measuring your relationships based on hourly rate and commissions and interest rates, then that may cause you to examine, are these the type of people that'll help me get from here to there? And that usually starts with the type of questions. Here's where I'm at, here's what, what I wanna go. What can you do for me as fill in the visor here? The attorney, the accountant, the insurance professional, the, the wealth advisor, the commercial banker, even the investment uh, banker. I, I, I can go on and on as far as the various uh, individuals. But when you first see what your price multiple is, that's why I said the benchmark. So let's say your price multiple is 5x. And you realize that if you're to do X, Y, and Z, which you could not do alone, because you have your full-time job of blocking and tackling. So you're either gonna have to have somebody internal to your organization or external act as a steward to the growth of that business. Um, they're gonna understand that the metrics are risk-driven. So obviously that allows you to manage that risk so that you're not putting what you've already established at risk. There's a difference between the risk to the asset and the risk within the asset, and we'd make that differentiation, how to build that value by minimizing that risk, not adding more risk uh, to it. And that's always done with those trusted advisors and even the vendors. May I give an example? So an example would be back to that metal fabrication business. You might look at your vendor as the raw material supplier. They give you the metals. You then fabricate whatever that finished product is. Do you talk to your vendor about what are some of the best practices that some of my competitors are doing in their businesses? Not that they're going to give the name of that specific business, but they may actually suggest, 
they're using just-in-time management. And as a result of that, their, the amount of inventory that they carry is much less, which would improve cash flow. And I may not have known about it. I don't know what I don't know. Here's free advice that could actually change my cash flow so that I'm not using lines of credit when my flow goes uh, down. Just a very simplistic example, but there are literally dozens of those, and they're all free. Well, and, and Carl, I'm a big believer in this. I mean, when we work, I choose vendors based on that, you know, because, uh, I, and I don't call them vendors anymore, I call them strategic partners, because that ability to share insights. I'm thinking of a, a conversation I had the other day with a CEO and I had one of my project managers and we were struggling with an issue and we, you know, it's a very large uh, organization. He's got tremendous experience there running all these events and we wanted to create this very large event and we were struggling on some of the issues. And in a 45 minute phone call uh, with him that we taped, you know, recorded with his permission, obviously, the insights I got there were worth probably, you know, $100,000 so easily. And, you know, I could have paid a consultant probably 200000 to get that $100,000 of value sometimes. You get the wrong one. So, I mean, part of, Carl, one of the things I see over and over again how important that team is. And particularly if you do decide to scale up, it's critical because none of us get there by ourselves. we got to have a team. Uh, and, and it's not just providing, you know, doing their job, whether it's internal or external. It's that passion of uh, working with fellow entrepreneurs that are creating a bigger pie for all and their enlightened self-interest. And Carl, how do you pick, you know, the, the right people? Because, uh, boy, you know, it, it's not only do you not get the lift if you have the wrong person? Oftentimes you get the, you know, a haircut. I mean, they, they can cause, I mean, you get the wrong person it can cause amazing damage. It's actually a good question. And the way that I usually pose that to a family or a founder is what are your top three priorities? And if they can't consolidate it to three, I know that there's an issue of dilution. And then the second question is, is this known to the advisors and your clients, your vendors, your, your key staff? And if the answer is no, you, you already know that you have gap right there. Um, so here's, a, again, a simplistic example. You have a commercial banker. When you were working out of your garage, the, the local bank was fine. But now you actually have some foreign uh, clients and you've scaled up to a business that maybe is doing 20 million in annual sales. That local bank may have a nice relationship with, but are they the right fit to help you scale? It may be time for Co-America, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, you know, you, you, you take your pick, but then you look at that banker. Are they talking in terms of rates and terms? Are they talking in, let's take a look at what you're doing we have data that will let you know what your asset allocation within the business ought to be, that your accounts receivable or out of whack. They may ask you about who your accountant is because they're taking a look at the tax returns and it looks like it's more of the uh, cash basis reporting, not really anything more than reporting the news, not helping to make the news. And that starts to become very organic and holistic. So it usually just starts with that conversation and you start to identify who's on board and whether somebody is more concerned about 
protecting their turf and their relationship as opposed to allowing you to expand the value of your relationships. Yeah, Carl, I, I want to just tell, you know, I mean, if as you're listening to this, um, I want each of us to kind of assess each of our vendors or relationships uh, internally and externally, because this is something I've done consciously. Now, I didn't do it early in my career. You know, if they delivered a good widget I was buying, that was fine. Now, if they're not a strategic partner, they're not helping you know, a fellow entrepreneur you know, looking to make the pie bigger in their own enlightened self-interest because it not only, you know, the value of the relationship, I'm not going to leave them for a penny on the widget difference and or the hourly rate or whatever it is, but they're creating a more successful partner. And I'll tell you, this is one of the things that, you know, it's kind of going back to that growth versus gratification because this is what makes growing a business a lot of fun. You've got these great people that you're hanging out with, that you have the privilege of hanging out, and we're all looking to create more value for the end user, no matter what we're doing. Um, that That's what I love about business. But, you know, Carl, one of the challenges in all this, and you talk about it, humility versus hubris. And, uh, I, you know, when you brought it up before we turned on the camera, I mentioned that I had one more than other at 35. I just recently turned 60. So, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing how confident you can be. And, you know, the problem with having success as an entrepreneur is you can get easily surrounded by the wrong people, start believing your stuff, and set yourself up for a big fall. I mean, how, how do we deal with this challenge? Well, one way to look at it is it's, first of all, it's not unique. So um, part of what we have is a sense of both fear and elation where we don't want to have a failure, but at the same time, we want to take advantage of uh, opportunities. Um, one way to, to uh, look at this is that are you the smartest guy in the room? Because if that's the way that you're thinking, that could be problematic in of itself. Uh, it may say something about your need for control. Um, another question that uh, should come to mind, tell you you're not alone, is everybody's heard about merger and acquisitions and uh, synergies and strategic acquisitions, but no one talks about the majority of them fail. And what I mean by fail is they don't achieve the accretion, the additional value that was hoped for. And these are what would say are the two smartest guys in the room, the guy that's negotiating the deal and the guy that's cutting the check. Um, so the question then becomes is if this is representative 80% of the time that that value doesn't occur, it might be worthwhile to examine are you doing this from the gut or are you doing this from a little bit more of a removed process? Not that you should get rid of your passion, but at some point as you're introducing more of a professional approach to scaling the business, trust becomes very, very important. And you have to start to acknowledge of what you don't know. Because what will be shown, and I, I do this in my book, which you know about, is, is that when people make decisions, and decisions are very, very important, of course, they make assumptions. And if you took a look at all the assumptions that are made from the point that you're deciding that you're going to decide to actually making the decision, you realize most of it's predicated on assumptions as opposed to fact, because facts are boring. 
Um, that would be the difference between humility and hubris. Know what you don't know and find the people that know what you need to know. Yeah, and it's never been, I mean, this is a part, once we recognize this, Carl, you know, you and I both agree. I mean, there, there's, so, there's so much talent out there and it's readily available today. Um, you know, it's, just, it's amazing that we can access it, but we have to take a step back and, you know, not recognize that we're, we're really not that smart. Now, most of us as entrepreneurs, we've had enough times that the market's beaten us down that we have a little bit of humility, uh, but it's very easy when our businesses are taken off or scaling up and things are working to lose that. And that's so dangerous. And that's why we've got to have the right team around us. Now, Carl, one of the things I want to go into too is, you know, you talk about this now versus five years out, the proactive versus reactive. And this is so important. How can entrepreneurs, you know, make the right call here? It's actually a good question. We're going to start back with that human capital again. Take a look at who your team is. Take a look at whether most of the dealings that you have, are they tactical? Are they transactional? Are they technical? Are they ad hoc? Are they reactive? And if the answer is yes to most of those, you have no strategy. Strategy isn't I'm gonna sell more next year. Strategy is, is what do I want this to look like so that we can clearly differentiate our value to anybody else that we're competing with. And what you'll find when you take away all the noise and all the mission statements is the people that you have that's different in your organization than the organizations that you're competing with, whether you're a one-man shop or whether you're a thousand-man organization. Yeah, no, that's so great. And I, I want to go to the next segment because you, you bring this all together in uh, what I call the, the book of the day. And uh, Carl, you have written a great book. I remember fact, I'm going to put it up on the screen here for those of you who are watching on video. And if you're not, remember the transcript, the show notes are all at AES Nation. But it's Equity Value Enhancement, a tool to leverage human and financial capital while managing risk. And uh, Carl, tell us a little bit about what's in the book uh, and how, you know, entrepreneurs can use that to really maximize their value? Well, one way to look at it is I have this acronym that if you can remember that as the takeaway, it's governance, which includes strategy, culture, innovation. It's the relationships that we talked about previously. It's the risks. And about a third to half of the book just talks about all these operational, financial, and legal risks that aren't just number driven and the last one is the knowledge that we talked about before or an acronym which we call greek what the book does even though i have an advanced degree in, in finance it emphasizes that the human capital must be leveraged in combination with the financial capital put another way you can't throw money at issues and expect a result to happen on its own very very rare so the way that you leverage the result is that you tap into that, that village, that ecosystem of people and that talent, and you ask the question, what do I want this to look like in five years or three years or even two years? And then you reverse engineer what it is that you're doing right now that has to change. Otherwise, you're gonna to default to the familiar. And what this does as a book is it takes you through 
those risks, examining advisor relationships. It tells the advisors the optics of risk through the lens of the owner, through the lens of other advisors. It talks about how to take all this and go together. And here's the good news. I still count on my fingers, even when I'm dealing with a billion dollar uh, client. So this is written truly for the lay person, not a valuation expert. Yeah, and, and let me put it up on the screen again, just so everybody has it. And again, go to the AES Nation. Uh, it's a great book. And uh, when uh, it is a little thick, uh, and very thoughtful. And I was thinking when I first, after meeting you and when I bought the book, I'm going, you know what, this is going to be, uh, I'm going to go back to all my financial background and so on. The reality was it's a great read because the biggest value creation you talk about is the human capital. And this is, this is where I think so many of us as entrepreneurs get caught up. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll disagree just for a second with you, Carl, that you, when you throw money at a problem, you said it didn't change. I, I have changed many things throwing money at it. Unfortunately, it hasn't always been positive changes. And when you're thoughtful, you visualize where you want to drive it. I mean, remember, as leaders, as entrepreneurs, we have to inspire our team, both internally and externally, as well as our clients to move forward. Well, we have to have a vision then if we're going to inspire them too and build toward that and be thoughtful and you know, use this strategic value of the architectural process that Carl's talking about. And, and it's just, it's, it, it creates so much value. It's amazing. Carl, let me go, uh, the next segment is resources. And uh, you know what I'm looking for here is, uh, let me put up your uh, website. And why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're, you know, what's there, and then also why don't you bring up your uh, your uh, charitable, uh, you because know, I mean one of the things that I think so often happens is, you know, we, we don't see the full person here, and and as entrepreneurs we're artists. I mean we're we're making a difference, and you're making a difference not only with the fellow entrepreneurs. Uh, you know your own businesses, your fellow entrepreneurs, but also and let me I'll, let me put up the uh, uh, your resource here, the website. It's a very easy one. Uh, Carl Schiller, uh, C A R L S H E E L E R dot com. Again, the link will be on the show notes. But Carl, what are you doing here? Well, if you go to the website again, we try to make it as uh, simplistic as possible. So you had re referenced the equity value enhancement as a book. Um, really, if you were to go to the website, you can see some of the various white papers and the blogs that I've written. I just recently wrote one for uh, LinkedIn. Some of the past presentations that I've done, the PowerPoints, the podcasts, and if uh, equity value enhancement holds interest, we allow uh, anybody that visits the site and we do not solicit. So the only thing that we need is the name and the email uh, address, and then we will send the first several chapters of the book complimentary. If you love it, we hope that you order the book. If you don't, um, well, I, I, I'm sorry to have disappointed. Um, in part, back to the foundation, uh, as I mentioned to you before, I'm a combat veteran myself, uh, being a tank officer, in the uh, Marine Corps, subsequently a uh, staff officer. I'm very, very sensitive to the number of veterans that have served multiple deployments because we didn't have a draft. And many, many of them are confronted with uh, combat 
post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we, we established a 501c3 uh, that offers equine therapy at a ranch that they will learn through their interaction with a horse how to actually deal and confront with life. Um, one, one other thing that we also try to attract entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, to this because their own personal, as you're talking about previously, entrepreneurs are outliers. They are not part of the herd. And particularly if you're at that five or 10 million, you've already beat the odds. And we tend to look at that as being ho-hum, not a big deal. It's a huge deal, okay? You're the job creator. You had to go out of your comfort zone to, to go after a passion and success. But the question then becomes, is this is how I've defined myself. Now what? Okay, so instead of being hearing things like exit strategy, I would argue, what's your transition plan? That's to go to the next chapter in the book, not just to close the book. And the, the ranch offers that as an opportunity, particularly families of great uh, success that want to leave a legacy. And so we tie that in to not only the 501c3, but a separate uh, opportunity for families of uh, affluence. No, that's great. Carl, you know, I mean, it's it's really impressive. And this is one of the things I think that, you know, each of us as entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, that we're, you know, I never like the give back kind of connotation because I think as entrepreneurs, we're delivering value all along and that's how we create value. But that next chapter in our professional career, those things, those passions that you have, you know, the ability to create foundations as you build wealth, um, you know, is one of the big arguments for scaling up. But let me go to the last segment, which is key takeaways. And I got to tell you, um, Carl, there's some great stuff. I just want to go over it one more time to make sure everybody got it. I mean, you know, growth versus gratification. Um, the 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 big thing here is there's nothing wrong with a lifestyle boutique. You know, Carl mentioned, I think the statistics I was seeing, you know, four out of every, to get to 5 million, you know, there's only one out of 400 entrepreneurs, you know, or business owners that do that. So 5 million or greater. And, and, you know, so no matter what level you are, you, you've accomplished some real success, but, you know, do you want to take it further and really build, you know, I, I always like, the enterprise value, but also having that, that lifestyle along with it. And, but it does mean some deferral to make it happen. Also, you know, Carl talked about the ecosystem and this is the value of human capital and really, you know, in his book, a great book on leveraging human capital. It's not just your team. It's not just your partners. It's just not the shareholders. It's everybody that you choose to work with. And there's so much value out there. And if they're not contributing beyond just that simple, uh, you know, 40 hours or the vendor that's just delivering, you need to have better partners. Also, humility. Boy, this is something as entrepreneurs, uh, you know, it's, it's easy, you know, when you're, you're doing, particularly as a business is really scaling up. And if it's not burning cash and it's actually giving you fair cash flow as well, it's amazing. You can start thinking you're really brilliant. Uh, you're not, okay? You're, you're talented for sure, but what we want to do is really understand, you know, where we fit in this equation and the value that we can create by, to, to really rely on our teammates. 
And then the difference between being proactive and reactive and that five-year-out vision, you know, really at, we want to lead. We want to inspire. In today's world, you know, we've got all these political things going on. And no matter when you're listening to this, <laughs> there's going to be political things going on. There's going to be uncertainty about the economy. There's going to be social challenges out there. With all that's going on, your clients are concerned, your teammates are concerned, you're concerned. You have to inspire to take action. Carl, this has been phenomenal. I just want to encourage everybody to go to aesnation.com. You'll get the transcript. Spend some time there. Go to the link uh, to Carl's website. You know, if you, you need a little proof, download the beginning of the book. But I'm going to tell you, just go buy the book. It is going to be the best 50 or if the Kindle version is only 50. I forgot what the other, maybe 70 bucks on Amazon. Uh, it is one of the highest return on investments you're going to ever get. Let's go out and make a difference. Your, your clients, your future clients, all those teammates, that human capital that wants to help you be even more successful, there for you. Wish you the best of success. Exceptional, remarkable breakthroughs. AESNation.com.